Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight. Well, I'm Buzz Knight, the host of the Taking a Walk podcast, and welcome to another in our series of episodes on Greenwich Village. My guest today is a dear friend who planted himself in front of the microphone in New York City about 30 years ago, and he continues to thrive. He's spent over two decades on Q104.3, New York City's classic rock station, he and I spent time on the air staff of the legendary 1027 WNEW-FM. Welcome to Taking a Walk, Ken Dashow. Buzz, it's great to see you again. Brings back so many great memories of working with you. And the, the good but also frightening news is that 2022, this is my 40th anniversary on the air in New York, which is A, cool, but on the other hand, these ah, 40 years. <laughs> Oh, man. When's the book coming out? Yeah, really. (laughs) Well, when did you first know you were hooked on this radio thing, man? You know, it's a weird thing. As little kids, kids want to be a ball player or a fireman or an astronaut or a doctor. And you have these fantasies of what you want to do. These days, kids grow up wanting to be a YouTube star. But that's a whole other chapter of all this. But as a kid, watching the Mets and wanting to play baseball, 
And it was something about radio, that friendly voice, that big, smiley voice that was telling me, here's the new Beatles song, and here's this new song, and it was in my bedroom. And I don't know why, but even as a kid, hearing the big voices of WMCA, I was a good guy, not an all-American. There were two big AM stations in New York. For some reason, and I don't know why, I just thought, I want to do that. And I don't know, it just, it pulled me like a thing that had me by the collar, just dragging me. It was always going, I was always going to be the artsy-fartsy kid. I was smart, I had good grades, but it was, it was movies, number one, theater, and my fallback was radio, much to the shock of the rest of my family. But my mom and dad were like, look, do the thing that you love and just work hard at it. Just be great at it and you'll be fine. Did Irving and Adele Dashow get to listen to you on the radio? Yeah, thank God that they had heard me. You know, be, before they passed, they, they lived okay, but they heard me. My first job, my, my friends were delivering pizza in Brooklyn, getting $3 an hour. And at 19, I got my first radio job doing weekends at XL Country in Newton, New Jersey, which was 76 miles away. So in my 69 Cutlass, whose speedometer had broken at a quarter of a million miles and burned about 50-50 gas and oil, I got $1.76 an hour for a, a five-hour show. So I, I don't know about these youngsters today, Buzz, but if you've totaled in gas, uh, tolls, and if I bought a sandwich, I was pretty much losing $5 a show. But I, I, I'm 19 and I'm in. I'm on the air. I'm being paid to be a disc jockey. I don't know anything about country music, but I'm Cousin Ken in XL Country, and I'm in. And that's all that matters. That's so funny. I think, uh, you know, Mark Chernoff, our old boss and our dear friend, was on an uh, earlier episode of Taking a Walk. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he start at a country station as well in somewhere in Westchester County, maybe? He, he was the one running XL Country, and he gave me my first job. Uh-huh. He, needed, he needed somebody on Sunday nights. You had to run the, it was the end of the uh, Mets game. And then you had to run the gospel service. And then there were three hours on the air where you get, get to be a DJ. And that's all that mattered was those three hours. I did not realize that Mark hired you there. That's great. My God. Wow. Barbara Mandrell still sleeping single in that double bed. I can't believe that. She's so pretty. <laughs> now, since so much of this series is focused on uh, in and around Greenwich Village, uh, were you able to venture to the village from the mean streets of Brooklyn? Yeah, you know, born and raised in Brooklyn. And what, very quickly, I, I, high school, poly prep in Brooklyn, you know, big, big sort of science and business and big sports school. And I love playing sports, but I was too small. I didn't grow, I, you know, through puberty, I didn't get big and strong. I'm five foot six. So as much as I had talent, everybody else was bigger than me, so I couldn't play varsity sports. But I wrote plays. I was in the theater program. I, I did every play. I wrote my own play and put it on. And we didn't have a radio station, so I sold pizza and cupcakes, and I built a four-watt radio station. And I took that, and I, I, my, as far as the college goes, I figured every school has classes 
and this classrooms and teachers. I just cared about the theater and the radio station. So I went to Hobart College because it had a gorgeous radio station and a really nice theater program. And I did that for a year. And then when I came back from that, I sent out my tapes and I went to NYU Film School. So that's when Mark Chernoff hired me on weekends doing country. So Monday through Friday, I'm writing scripts. I'm, I'm trying to shoot my little student films. I'm trying to get work on commercials and things to learn how the business works. And on weekends, I'm driving out to Newton, New Jersey. And I was, for whatever reason, as opposed to drinking beer and trying to hook up and get girls, not that I didn't want it, but the switch was just on as from 18 on it's like i had it i had to get going i had to do this i had to do this I, that's why i came back to new york and instead of joining the nyu station i sent out my tapes and that was it but the biggest thing i learned at nyu is i fell in love with a girl and we moved into uh, her thompson street apartment right on bleaker street and thompson and the best education i ever got at nyu was living in Greenwich Village at 19 years old. That was so. Wow, I got chills. That's so cool. What were some of the favorite haunts uh, there? I know, I mean, look, uh, I always felt the bottom line was almost like NEWFM's other studio in terms of, you know, the relationship and the shows that were broadcast from the bottom line. What are some of your favorite places and memories in the village of shows and <laughs> it's funny what are some of my favorite places yes they're all of my favorite places but you know I, you asked me this it's so funny the things we forget in life or who is that guy we work with or whatever but that period of time 19 in the village early 80s you know in late 70s or no late 70s can't forget any of it it's all it's so much a part of my DNA and influenced so much of me the bottom line right there in West 4th Street at, at, by NYU was the first show I ever saw in the village. It was Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And I was just leaving class with Blood, Sweat, and Tears? Really? Literally down the block from class? I'll buy a ticket. And you realize it's that easy. Every band you want to see is playing here at the bottom line. I'll just keep coming in. And then when you move there, and literally you're immediately you're a New Yorker. It's the one thing about being in New York. You don't have to try. If you're living there, you don't have to say, well, how's traffic or it's raining. You're there. So the bottom line, the village gate is down the block with the greatest jazz artists who ever lived. And there's a club scene with open mic nights and cool acts at the bitter end. And down the block from that is Kenny's Castaways. And Cafe Wa, where Bob Dylan started, is still there. And all the cafes are still there. With a, a, there's a stool and a spotlight in every cafe. And it was just vibrating, the entire thing. It, it was the tail end of the glory days of the village, but it was still there, the energy of, of just people, students, and everybody trying to make it, musicians and comedians. And you're just walking with upcoming stars and people who live there and students. And that collective energy is something that I wouldn't trade for the world. How do you feel about the village these days? I mean, do you feel like it still has that the energy? Now, on, on one of these episodes, Danny Fields and I uh, walked through the village. And, you know, Danny's perspective, obviously, is always unique. Uh, but, you know, for him, it was it was certainly uh, 
a bit mournful going over to where CBGB's uh, used to be and seeing uh, a fancy t-shirt joint. Yeah, I mean, that's what's happened to it and truly to the detriment of of the neighborhood and like everywhere else in the world, and I mean in the world where, you know, corporations came in and big box stores could pay a lot more rent than a club owner can and, you know, this venue is now, you know, a drugstore and, you know, at least an upscale t-shirt shop where you, you know, You've you've got a really fancy store where CBGBs was, and it's still cool stereo components and things. But it's you know where the stage was is so the the stage is there, but that's a memory. Uh, the bottom line that I pass by every day when I'm walking back from work, where I saw all of these amazing shows, the Ramones, and name name an artist that we love and listen to where I saw them. Um, you know, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, all those bands of the, of the 70s, uh, Rock Pile, that every squeeze, every Billy Joel doing a show from there and doing his impression of Bruce Springsteen. Well, that's now a Starbucks. And I, I sit there and look at it going, it's a Starbucks. You don't, you can't imagine what this place meant. And I know it's memories and all that, but I got, uh, uh, I went to a show at what changed for me, my whole perspective, the magic of it, I went to see a comedy show. Tuesday nights was comedy shows at the bitter end. And there's a local guy, really funny, cockney guy, uh, David Copperfield, who's the host. He's like, and I, this is when I got to NEW. It's like, oh, man, you should come down, man, you should come down. And I'm funny. I, we tell stories on the air. And he got up on stage and said, hey, I got a surprise for you in a bit. Uh, uh, lad, uh, Ken Dashout from NEW is going to come up and do a few minutes. I had literally never done stand-up in my life. And I said, David, I, I don't do this. Oh, man, you'd be great. No, no, I don't have an act. I don't. He goes, and he pulls me into the kitchen. He goes, tell me one joke. Well, yeah, no, just tell me a joke. Tell me, tell me a, one of your favorite jokes. Great. Tell me a, a second joke. There's your act. You're going to do two jokes. I'll come get you. And he literally threw me, no, figuratively threw me into the deep end of the stand-up pool. And it went okay. And he's like, great, man, great. All right, you did, you just did two minutes. You did two and a half minutes on my watch. I want another two and a half minutes next week. I want to have five minutes. And he forced me, he took me like on the bike with training wheels and taught me how to build a stand-up back. And I started doing stand-up. And, you know, there's the bitter end. And there's, on the walls, there's pictures of Richard Pryor and Dylan and... George Carlin and all Neil Young and you're there on this little stage with a microphone and I'm sorry you can't not realize the, the people who preceded you on that stage with the same two lights and the microphone and there was some magic in that room. yeah no kidding wow I'm, I'm hosting the comedy evening when I Tuesday and it's going well and I'm kibitzing and I'm bringing up a this act that when you're the host you're doing a little shtick in between the different comedians and i'm on stage and i see a guy walk in and you could just feel the air change and he's got a hoodie and a hat and a leather jacket and he stands at the bar and somebody gives him the beer and i look over and it was bob dylan and he walked in and i just looked and i just knew i didn't make a mention i didn't say anything i didn't do anything and I could feel he was tense. I just kept doing my act and did the thing. He was the next comedian. And I looked over. I just glanced, did the next one. 
And afterwards, I came back towards the bar where we'd hang out and and just stood next to him. And I, without looking at him, I just said, everything's cool. You know, I lo love having you here. And he, without him turning to me, he said, thanks. <laughs> and so we never looked at each other, but I had to tell him, you know, I, I hope, what I wanted to say is, I hope for the love of God, you understand what it means that you're standing here with a beer, watching what's happening now when you built an entire world here 20 years ago. Well, that takes me to uh, another Bob Dylan story, which I've told before on this podcast. Uh, I put it under my uh, regrets part of life. Um, but I'll let you tell the story when uh, we saw Bob Dylan uh, while we were at NEW when our dear friend, uh, late friend Rocky Del Balzo and Paul Rappaport took myself and you and my wife and your wife at the time and some others up to see Mr. Dylan. Uh, would you tell the, 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 the story about the shot of whiskey? Oh, sure. Um, terrified to meet Bob, like as we all are. And they're afraid. And it's the first time, you know, for folks listening, record company promo guys, they, they would walk into the Vatican and say, hi, Pope, Paul Rappaport, CBS Records, how you doing? Listen, I've got an artist. There's no fear in these guys. But they were afraid to knock on the door. It was like softly talk, tapping on the Godfather's door and came in and like, don't be an idiot, don't be an idiot, don't say anything stupid, just say hi. And walked in and this is Ken Dash out and how you doing? And Bob said, want some whiskey? And everybody was looking at me like, and I just thought, no, you don't think I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a shot of whiskey with Bob Dylan? You must be crazy if you think I'm passing up this opportunity. And I said, L'chaim. And he went, oh, L'chaim. And we toasted and had some whiskey. I did not realize, I was so petrified there. I know. I didn't realize you were the one that took the shot of whiskey. I didn't. I'm the lame-o that was so petrified looking at him like, you're the voice of a generation. My God, I can't answer you. So that's my like that's my only regret in life, uh, not taking the shot. So you took the freaking shot. Had to I went, like because would this opportunity ever come up again? That Phil Lesh passing you a joint. I don't I don't know what's in it, but I'm never not going to do that. To say there was a moment in my life where somebody from the Grateful Dead passed me a joint and I took a puff and passed it back. Check mark. I mean that's that's done. I mean, just that—that's where it. That's that is done. I—I've met Bob. I met Bob three times in my life, and I never want to meet him again because each time it was better than the last. And I don't want to ruin. You know, it's—it's it's too big a chance to get him on a bad night. But each time he was funnier and friendlier, and it's a digression from the village. But the last time I met him, and I can't. I can't remember, I swear to God, I can't remember what the venue was. It was some show. And again, it was our late friend, Rocky Del Balzo, Paul Rappaport, come back, VIP. And it was before the show. All right, let's clear out. And I, I got caught. And 
for folks that understand, you're supposed to, you leave because you don't want to interfere with an artist about to come on stage unless he's a dear friend. You know, they're focused. They've got to do a show. And I got stuck. I couldn't get out because they had closed the get out of here. But Bob was coming down from the dressing room. So I literally just averted my eyes. I tried to be invisible. I stood in this sort of little ante room and was just averting my eyes so he wouldn't see me. And I just feel these two eyes just glaring at me, like two feet away from me, just glaring at me. And it's just burning a hole in me. And I finally turned around and went, and he said, do I know you? <laughs> I said, no. I, I, I know I met you. Uh, uh, Ken, uh, I work in radio. Radio? New York radio? Yeah, with Scott Muni. And he's about to go in and he goes, oh my God, Scotty, man. Scott Muni, man, that's great. So you're at NEW? Yeah. So, you know, we didn't have anything like that. When I got here, it was just AM radio. We didn't have any cool radio. I couldn't get on AM radio. And Buzz, he's doing the interview that all of radio has been trying to get from him since 1964. And he is just going on effusively about New York life, living here in the village, what it was like. But AM radio was out of scene. So they had to build their own scene, not because they wanted to, but because it didn't exist. And they were hoping to break through to the mainstream. But they knew he's doing the entire interview. Just to me, I, like, please, God. Make my make my ears a tape recorder, please. God, make my make my brain a tape recorder. And the stage manager is glaring at him, and the stage manager is getting angry and said, "Bob, this this is amazing. I I love this, but I I think you're needed." And he said, "What?" I said, "Yeah, I think it's time." He goes, "Oh, oh yeah. Hey, can you hang after the show? We'll keep talking." Sure. And that's when I realized that's I felt that's Bob. I just felt like talking. I felt like telling you this story now. You have a time face. And the fact that he's about to go on stage, go on. This moment, in this moment, I feel like doing this. I went, that's what it is. That's why it's, because this moment is this moment. And the next moment, and the, the state, his, his road manager was going to kill me. And I said, you saw what happened. You saw, I didn't, he goes, you can't engage him. You cannot engage him. Like, I did, you cannot engage him. And stormed out. And I'm like, and it was just that moment. And afterwards, I'm not, I don't, bad feelings. He doesn't remember that. I'm with uh, Roger McGuinn. And, Roger, and I'm talking with Roger McGuinn. And the, the road manager comes back and says to Roger, he'd like to see you. And I said, Roger, it's great talking to you. I have to go. Roger said, why don't you come with me? And I, look, and I said, no, you know what? I, I had my moment. I don't. I don't need to intrude because I know what the guy doesn't want me in there. He goes, no, no, I, no. It'd be great. We we don't have anything to say to each other. We need someone to talk to. Come back with me. And I look at the manager. and He just throws up his hands. And I went back, and I'm sitting in like my uncle Danny's house with two older rockers going, oh, remember this guy? Remember that guy? We there was this guy who used to work in the village. Oh, remember, that was Cafe Wild, wasn't it? It's like the Sunshine Boys doing folk rock memories while I'm in the room because they needed a kid to talk to to tell the stories. And it, it'll never top it. That's outstanding. Wow. And how special was it for you uh, working at WNEW-FM? I know for me, it was one of the, the most special parts of a career that I'm very grateful for. I mean, I, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, and you know, you grew up in Brooklyn, and 
obviously we we knew the station the station was a was a powerhouse um uh, i was the i had my dual identity uh, card then uh dasher i i was uh buzz night five days a week and bob killer kosak on saturday and sunday uh, <laughs> but how special was it for you to be at that that amazing station it was that was the moment i mean i my break into new york i went from country in new jersey getting a dollar 75 an hour to doing rock and roll out in eastern long island in riverhead getting 380 an hour but how many people double their salary between their first and second jobs to uh 82 this the summer of 82 was the WAPP came in, a new rock station that was commercial free for the summer and I fought, I, I sent tapes to everybody who even knew there was a rumor of them running it and it's another whole story about how you get into radio but our morning guy was going to be offered weekends and turned it down because he's a morning man he turned down weekends in New York City for mornings out in Oshkosh, out in Riverhead and I knew it, and I called and said, "On here, weekends, whatever." And it's a new station, so by the, the I'm doing weekends, but before he even started, the nighttime guy couldn't sell his house, and his wife didn't want to move, and I wound up doing nights. And it was a pretty boring, basic station that didn't have any personality uh, musically. It didn't have any effect. It was just commercial for free playing generic rock. And I just kept pounding on the door at NEW. And I don't know what your interview was like at NEW, but Richard Neer was the one who brought me in. And everybody thought, you're crazy. You're giving up five nights, a, five days a week on the brand new shiny rock station for weekends and fill-ins at NEW. Like, hell yeah, of course. Because it's NEW. And it's the most honest answer of you. I, I, they said, you got to meet Scott. And I go in to meet Scott Muni. Coffee, cigarettes, got the paper. <laughs> So what's your story, Fats? I said, born and raised in Brooklyn, and my story is very simple. If you played it and talked about it, I know it. If you didn't play it, I don't know it. Anyway, what are your sports teams? And that was the end of the interview, and I was done. And I meant it. If it was played on that radio station, it's in me. You didn't play it, don't know what it is. It was a lifestyle. It wasn't just casual. It was a lifestyle for me. How did you get there? Uh, I knew Charlie Kendall uh, from um, some industry events, I remember. I had known him when he was in Philadelphia at MMR. And then when he moved to NEW, I had kind of stayed in touch with him. And I remember asking him um, at some, you know, maybe, you know, R&R convention or something, you know, about working there. And uh, he's like, well, I only have weekends. And I said, uh I'm in. And he said, really? And he, I said, yeah. So he goes, all right. And that was literally it. I remember saying, well, what name do I use? And uh, I said, you know, because it's using this name Buzz Knight while I'm up in Connecticut. He said, well, how about using your real name since it's okay with your mother? And uh, so I was like, okay. And uh, that was it. And uh, no, no practice show or anything like that. <laughs> well, you've been on five days a week. I mean, you know how much warm. As long as you get the call letters right, you're in. Well, that's funny. I I got my names right for the first year. I didn't screw up 
at all. I got. Did I got you have the, the coffee cup? Did you have your coffee cup like Johnny Fever with your name on it? I just, you know, I, I just had to constantly remind myself. But a year in, I remember we had those liner cards that we used to read, you know, promoting something. And you know, there was the whole weekend warriors, and there was a, a note that, you know, had our names promoting the weekend warriors, and they were it was initialized there. So. I'm staring at it, reading, and of course I see BK. Well, BK is Buzz Knight. BK is Bob Kosak. So a year in, I think it was I was doing Saturday Night at that time, and Buzz Knight co- name comes out of my mouth uh, while I'm reading the card. I just ignored it. I figure it's New York City. It's Saturday Night. Everyone's got a Buzz. It's Buzz Knight. I know, you know, and I I ignored my faux pas. But I was mortified. But it took a year for me to screw that up. <laughs> Very good. Excellent. 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 Love that. Yeah. But it was an amazing place for sure. I was just uh, looking through some uh, some some old uh, memorabilia from from the, that time. And remember the concert calendars that uh, oh sure were, were, that were done and and how beautiful they were. Really, I, I had showed some of the calendars that we did to our promotions team. They were like. This is just magical. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's when a, a st- when a company owned a radio station or two radio stations, you could do your own promotions, you could build your own idea and an identity. I mean, uh, corporate radio is like corporate anything. There's a, a giant chain of command of what gets money, what doesn't, and you get by with what you have as opposed to, I bought this radio station and I want to promote it. What's a creative, not too expensive way to get it out there? And that's, I mean, it's not just radio. It's in every facet of life. I, you know, that's something that's missing of places. This drugstore putting a unique spin on how they do things versus that drugstore. When you're a CVS or something, that store manager can only do so many balloons to promote something. Yeah, it's it was a time that uh, certainly uh, there was an opportunity to, for that station to stand out by doing unique things, unique events and, and unique promotions and the calendar. Remember the, the Christmas concert uh, at the Garden? What, what an unbelievable experience that was being on stage with Yoko and Sean. I mean, come on, you know. Remarkable, remarkable memories. And, you know, circling back to the village, it was like that in that there were certain types of acts that played certain venues. You know, the Village Gate was mostly jazz. I saw every great jazz artist from Herbie Hancock to, God, David, Dave Brubeck played there, Miles. They were amazing. You hear these legends of this music playing literally a block away from me. Bottom line was rock and folk and occasionally folk jazz, I mean, rock jazz of David Bromberg always playing there. Dave Edmonds was a staple, you know, uh, Annie Haslam from Renaissance and the Ramones, even though the Ramones were more punk CBGBs, but it would go in that direction. And then for clubs and for what's considered alt rock today, that was Kenny's Castaways, where the Smithereens started, and the Bitter End, where Steve Forber and Suzanne Vega and those guys started. Every kind of club had its certain sort of identity. And Everybody who tells me, you know, not just reading about San Francisco, but um, people work with the Grateful Dead in, in that world about 
they explained to me, I, I got a tour once of San Francisco, kind of like what we're talking about, Greenwich Village, what it was like then, as they said, you know, the Jefferson Airplane were always playing the pizza place. And, you know, the, the, the storytellers, the folk rockers and poets, Le, Le, Leonard Cohn and the, the hippie bus in Ginsburg were at the Inkwell if you wanted coffee. You know, so the dad, the warlocks at the time were at the hall, at the Union Hall. You know, so as you were, if you wanted a slice of pizza, you were going to hear psychedelic Grateful Dead. If you wanted coffee and a muffin, you were going to hear poetry. You know, if it was all here in Haight-Ashbury, so you had to be influenced by it all. And that's what Greenwich Village had. It's a small village of network of clubs, Cafe Wa, um, Cornelius Street Cafe that doesn't get as much cachet. I, I, Donovan has become a friend through the years. He said, let's go have lunch at Cornelius Street. And we, we had lunch, and he gave me his walking tour of the village. He just felt like going down memory lane with somebody. And he explained what that this was important, that he couldn't get into Cafe Wa, that it would be like an 11 to a midnight or 1 a.m. slot. But as Cornelius Street Cafe was trying to get in the game, they gave him an 8 o'clock slot. So he forgo the big name to play an earlier show and work that way to get to there. And he's explaining the mechanics of who played where. And as he's looking by buildings, he's giving me a history of 60s folk rock, English and American, of who is where. And I'm like, totally get it. I love it. I think I could see it. Wow. I think one of the really cool things about you being at Q104.3 for, for so long is, you know, we worked, you know, as part of this air staff with some, you know, real iconic figures. And you have your whole air staff at Q that kind of has... Uh, iconic figures uh, Jim Kerr and uh, Shelley Sunstein uh, what's life like at, at Q Carol Miller our old friend from NEW what is life like at Q104 for you it, it has been truly an absolute blessing not a, a drop of, of phoniness or whatever it has been a, the dream job of a lifetime for 23 years and I hold on to it as tightly as I can and protect this house for all. Because it was 1999, and NEW said, there's, there's not classical music, classic rock is dead. There's a dime left in it. It's all Opie and Anthony and strippers and putting handicapped people on the microphone and making fun of their disability. And that's what radio is now, and that's the, that's the future from Mel Carmison. And I said, can't be. And waving a, a giant book of you know some some consultant's thing of telling you what you want to hear and putting a lot of pages in it, I said, "You don't think the Beatles have any cachet? You don't think there's money left in the Beatles?" He goes, "It's 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's gone." I said, "Interesting, because if the Beatles were a publicly traded company, I would take all of my money out of every mutual fund they have and put it in Beatles Inc." Like you know, there was no Apple at the time, like, and I'll be fine. And 99, a beautiful guy who I'm sure you know, and may rest in peace, who saved my life, his name was Steve Young from Seattle. Steve was integral to launching Pearl Jam and Nirvana. At his station there, he built what became the grunge sound because he loved the writing, because he saw the, uh, the new Dylan in the writing of Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain. And and Stone Temple and you know all of those guys and Chris Cornell, and he helped build it. He came here 
and he called me and said, I have the last seat on the last lifeboat off the Titanic, and it has your name on it. And, you know, I'm sure like every once in a while, like you running into Charlie Kendall, there's a moment where that that magic thing happens and you go running and he just kind of cherry picked the DJs he liked. There was Jim, Jim Kerr and Carol came, even though Carol was with us at NEW, her glory days was at PLJ. And he took me and Scott from NEW. And from K-Rock, the other rock station in town, he took Maria Molito and Mark Coppola and put us together. We played the music. And, you know, Buzz, you've been a PD for so much of your life. And whenever I would go in and ask him about structure of what he wants in the breaks, where do you want the promos? Where, How do you want horizontal promos? For, and he would just go, you know all that crap. Yeah, I do. Okay. Well, I'll just, you know, just consistency, stay the course, build the music. It was really a tight playlist. I said, want to open it up a little? He said, we will. Right now, we got to establish who's on the air and what we do, because this place has been hazy. We have to get it into focus. And he built it and then got bored and left and went back. As he said, I, I love building a home for my friends, but I've got a house overlooking Puget Sound. and I want to go back. Like, okay. And Bob Buckman came and... It was, he wanted to bring in his BAB people himself and Jerry Martier. And we worked it out. And Jerry would do his Friday road show because that was his big thing. And he said to me, we do, would do a weekend show. Oh, yeah, Sunday. How about I'll do a morning show. I don't want to do afternoons. It was Sunday morning. Yeah. And it was one after, I don't remember, one 2002 or something. It was an anniversary of the Beatles. I said, it's Beatles anniversary of coming to America. I said, Why don't you play Beatles music? So I'll play a couple of songs. He goes, play the whole, play two hours. I said, seriously, yeah, play it. Man, what's going to happen? Sunday morning. And on Monday, I came in. And he said, did you play two hours of Beatles music? I said, yeah, no. And I'm defensive, like you told me to. He goes, yeah. Um, we've never gotten such a response to anything in all my years in radio. You got to see the emails, the phone calls are coming in. And all they're asking is, are you going to do it again? I said, yeah, next anniversary, I'll do it again. He said, how about this coming Sunday? And I'm quick, Bob, I'm quick. I went, you mean play Beatles again the next week? Two hours of Beatles? Yeah. All right, if you think so. I just played two hours of Beatles music and told stories about it, what I love, and hey, you want to hear something special? And the phones exploded, exploded like I was giving away who tickets. And I came in next Monday, he said, you played Beatles again? Yeah, he goes, just keep playing Beatles Sunday mornings. We'll be fine. And that's 22 years now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish. It's, it's the one thing about, you and I know this about radio or anything else. If it's, if it's not a great idea, if the audience doesn't resonate with the idea, you can promote it from here till the end of the world. Nobody's going to listen or watch it. If an audience loves something, they love it. Don't stop it. Exactly. Dasher, why is music so vital to our soul? I, I think the perfect answer is what happened during the pandemic of people, we were frenetic. We've been at each other's throats so much, but without live concerts, without us congregating, not for religious experience, but for a joyous music experience. I think it goes back to caveman days. You know, we congregate together around the fire and it was storytellers. And that was your television. That was your entertainment. 
and it always goes back to we want to be together we're we're homogenous people but when you're at a Billy Joel last night Madison Square Garden for John Lennon's birthday they played Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and the roof came off the place because you don't ask the person next to you who did you vote for or are you an anti-vaxxer or no it's about music it's a it's the thing I've always said music has been my best friend my whole life it's the most consistent friend I've ever had it's always there it always lifts me up it always can reflect my mood happy sad the emotion of that a book requires you to sit and look at it I love reading a TV program means you can look at it music you can listen while you're walking while I'm walking my dog I'm listening to it when I, and when I'm playing it the difference between streaming and what we do is you have a friend and for us at least in New York and I think nationwide maybe a worldwide radio listening during COVID shot through the roof because Spotify never says to you how you doing you have anybody in your family who's sick I know we all do and here's hoping it gets better and here's here's journey don't stop believing and the, the song you've heard 10,000 times takes on a different context and that's what that's what human beings on radio whether you're listening over the airwaves or streaming or however you get it you know when I get an email from Crete saying listening to Breakfast of the Beatles here on the iHeartRadio app I go yeah it, it's not ego of man I'm special it's ego of the music look what this music means that somebody on vacation or halfway around the world goes I need to listen to that I need not I want to I need to listen to it like that's what it's such a deep emotional connection to see people sob when somebody plays music to feel the rush of energy when somebody plays something that lifts you up it's just magic love you buddy I appreciate the time oh Thanks my pleasure I got one last quick village Greenwich Village story uh, of my era of late 70s and it goes back I was told 10 years to like the early 70s there's an old Italian restaurant on 6th Avenue and West 4th Street right where the basketball courts are the famous intersection where the West 4th Street subway is and it's called Emilio's and when I was doing stand-up at the, the bitter end and there were folk musicians here and there and as well Kenny's castaways we all went to Emilio's and the the Billy Braggs and Suzanne Vegas would sit at their table discussing world politics and all the comedians would be at this table trying to work on each other's acts we were all it was all helpful hey you know that piece you do about the cars yeah well, i was thinking what if you said and what if you said while you're driving what what if but of course driving in brooklyn is different and you could tie in brooklyn and we would help each other hone each other's acts and i noticed that the singers would never help each other with their songs at the table they're always talking about world politics and this and that and angry and we were all just focused on making your show better and it was just two different worlds but we never we always came together we'd see each other and say hi but we never sat together that the comedians were this world and I, I got to meet the late David Brenner and met George Carlin just most brilliant and I asked him that's how it was with me he goes Oh, exactly the same. Hasn't changed. Richie Havens and Joan Baez go off here. You know, me, I'm here with my guys talking about this joke and that joke. And we, it's always been like that. He goes, probably goes back, you know, the court jesters hung together and the lute player hung with his guys. And like, that's how it always is. Love it. That's awesome. 
Thanks for your generosity, my friend. It's great to be with you. Oh, Buzz, my pleasure. Great reconnecting with you anytime. Let's get together. Let's go down to the village and get something to eat one day. I'm in. Thanks, brother. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 